Hi, this is Tulsa Kinney, editor of Artillery Magazine, joining forces with We We Eat Art. Artillery has been around 11 years, L.A. focused. It's the only art magazine that's fun to read. In this issue, our May-June issue, we focus on identity art. We call it Who Are You? April Bay graces our cover. She talks with Anise Stevens on Afrofuturism. Young June Kwok of Mutant Salon talks with our excellent contributor, Ixta Maya Mure, and Judy Bamber is also interviewed by staff writer Ezra Jean Black, Tin Nguyen by Betty Ann Brown, and Carmen Argote by Scarlett Chang. Artillery is sold nationally on bookstands, newsstands, and museum stores. They're distributed free in L.A. galleries, so maybe check for that. Also, you can subscribe to Artillery and get it on your front porch. Go to artillerymag.com slash subscribe. I started doing bloodletting work when I was 18. I only had one person who was like, well, I like your physical work better. Okay, go see the good show around the corner then. I'm not bothered. There's no need to say the same thing the same way over and over again. I felt like I thoroughly explored the beauty of blood, the violence of blood, the danger of blood, the polemic of blood. You know, that was my palate for a long, long ride with it. It's okay to not have it in every piece. This is Tulsa Kinney, editor of Artillery Magazine. I'm John Mejias in New York. And I'm Zach Smith in Los Angeles. Artillery Magazine presents We Eat Art, a podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about you have one story you keep retelling like I do come through the same channels over and over again. I just think they land in different places. I am stuck in this ritual view of things unfolding and presenting and standing in for something. The idea of channeling something you can't describe. This episode they will be interviewing LA artist Ron Athey about I believe in formality I believe in stepping up to the plate stepping up to the screen and then it starts the meaningful thing starts it doesn't identify itself in the recesses so we're in Ron's lovely Los Angeles apartment you can always tell the difference between the Los Angeles interviews and the New York ones because when it says lovely that means you're in LA we've got light coming from different directions we have cool screens in front of the windows we have less books than in New York, but all your books are somewhere else, right? We're good. Down the hall. So usually we like to start at the beginning. You were born somewhere. Oddly, I was born on a submarine base hospital in Groton, Connecticut. But my mother was born in the Inland Empire, you know, Hemet. So I have Southwestern roots for a few hundred years. That one Navy guy. (laughs) Suddenly I was... Gets around. (laughs) Suddenly I was in Connecticut. (laughs) You had a really religious upbringing from what I understand. Yes, and and that's fueled a lot of the work I make. I was raised going to tent revival meetings. You know, we're Pentecostals, charismatic movement family, and also practiced a lot of things from the spiritualist church. So the spiritualist movement... That's a whole separate thing than Pentecostalism. Yeah, but it bleeds into it. And there's regionalism. You know, there's Pentecostal churches in the deep south that read entrails. Right, and handle snakes. (laughs) Right, and and, and the Appalachian. But was there like glossolalia? Sure, so all the gifts of the spirit. What made it interesting for me to, to make art about it, and then eventually this opera, Gifts of the Spirit, is this kind of psycho neurology of speaking in tongues, of dancing in the spirit, of being in a healing meeting 
of people tuning into the same hallucination while rattling a tambourine. <laughs> These things are more than the belief system to walk away from it and still have it in your body. This was my question since I was a teenager. Like, what is it then? If it's not Jesus, what is it? I guess that initially led me down that road. Well, when you get older and you start making art, you're participating in a larger culture and ecstatic experience is like something that you can understand or you're missing something and then you go and you get it. But I mean, did you have a feeling later when you look back on being young that the people who were also participating, were they missing something or was that just filling the space? Was it just like, oh, you do that and now these are whole people in my youth? Or you go, these people are trying to fix a problem that they never quite fixed. I think it's dissociative. That's why um, abjectly poor people like just dive into it. Not that other people don't get involved in it as well. It's like spiritual tantric <laughs> and plus, like who doesn't want to take a high? So it's an escapism. It's an alternative reality. Right. That's for certain. It's not like the new age quest. Like I have everything and yet I feel empty. Mm -hmm. Where is my est classes or my... I guess the new thing is mindfulness, but it's, right. it's not that, like trying to fill a hole. Yeah. It's trying to tune in a, a different reality. It has very little to do with what your life is like. So do you feel like it's not something that people carried with them throughout the week? They would just check in, check out, and go back to, or would that alternative reality be sort of filtered into the rest of the way they saw things? That would filter in eventually. It's hard to stay grounded and play and the outer stratosphere. You know, you see the same thing with people that get into magic and things. They start talking magic psychobabble all the time and right. can't like filter out. <laughs> I don't know, for me, that that's my maybe my judgment on it, but I, I, no, I mean, it's, it's close to my heart and I keep it at arm's distance because it's hard to stay in this reality and, and continue to stay focused, I guess. It's an LA artist thing too. Original spirituality is a very Californian thing. California has a history of people trying to invent new religions, spiritualities. Sure, lots of population came just because they had arthritis, you know, in the 19th century. So it's, it's a population that was ripe for it. But I don't know, a lot of work did happen, like at SLN and different communities here during different times, meaning the turn of the century sort of health movements, the cancer cures, which were like a coffee enema every half hour that Mary Baker Eddy's father yeah, did. Yeah, and now what's-her-name is bringing <laughs> that back? As Gwyneth Paltrow's. They like... never go that far. <laughs> <laughs> Was it hot coffee? Well, it would be body temperature, right. you know. But it yeah. doesn't have to come out of the Mr. Coffee into your butthole. <laughs> so how many minutes in before we said butthole? <laughs> so in order to get toward buttholes, when was the first time you saw something that was like art, the art world, an art sphere that's like outside of what you knew that you're like, oh, I want to be an artist in some sense? I got into the music scene first and right. I started seeing performance artist um, Johanna Went firstly and then looking at mutated classical like Fat and Fucked Up within even... 1980 punk rock, there's already like cabaret art circuits yeah. thriving in the middle of it. So th that's what turned me on the art. So what was the, the early the music show. stuff? Well, Pomona was kind of the intersection between Orange County and LA. So being involved with bands like the Adolescents, 
you know, on one side and staying at the little Tokyo hotel with people on that side. So you're like a West Coast hardcore. Sure. I mean, that was like right at the sure, beginning. Sure, that's where I it. grew up. And then, then it just opened the door to other things right away, including the industrial culture shows that Stuart Sweezy put on at the press club and then at Desert Exodus, Mojave Exodus shows. Was that kind of just like ahead of, and you were like, oh, this is where this could happen? Or were you part of framing and creating that stuff? When it started to be actual a circuit of industrial performance. And oh no, I was just a punter. I okay, was yeah. a fan. Um, and my first boyfriend was Ross Williams from Christian Death. So right, yeah. Besides, you know, kind of being deeply into this death rock scene for a few years, and going sideways out that way. You know, first through the local band that wasn't exactly that sound was Nervous Gender, but in terms of queerness, electro. What year was that? They were 77 okay. through, you know, now. And then Premature Ejaculation. Started kind of on a Christian death break between 1980 and 81. We and then you were it. in the first incarnation? Yeah, it was then. just me and Roz and, yeah. and Mary Torsavia on percussion. We were talking earlier, I had just talked to Cozy from throbbing gristle. A lot of people who are from the art scene have a take on the work that cuts out the music scene and how music interacted with it. And they have a tough time. I don't know, so maybe it's, sometimes it's an easier time or maybe it's a tough time describing how the performance affects the audience and how the relationship of the audience to the performance because they don't have that background in what the music is and isn't about. For me, punk rock was never going to be associated with performance art because at a certain point, as soon as you plan it, cutting yourself with a glass bottle ceases to be punk rock, you know? But if you're going to plan right. things, industrial requires Right, planning. it goes into Alice Cooper right away. Yeah, yeah, it requires machines and the theatricality. And there was a slightly different ethic that allowed for theatricality mm -hmm. in there. For Cozy, she was just like, I was never a punk. I was not into that. Her stuff with Throbbing Gristle, her explanation was like, once Chris Carter told us, when you mess something up, you have to try again and do it right. And you don't just stop because you messed it up. And she was like, that was huge for us. That was the difference between the band before Throbbing Gristle and Throbbing Gristle. As in Throbbing Gristle, we actually would keep doing things until we got them right. right. <laughs> uh, and that was sort of the beginning of industrial music as a separate kind of thing, was that it was going to work. You know, it was going to be a machine. From there, you could do a performance. Didn't have to just be a thing you did once. You didn't tell anyone. You took a photograph. You have to and be like, no, it's going to be a thing. It was like about giving yourself permission to do something that was kind of planned. I agree with Cozy that everything shouldn't be called punk. I feel annoyed with the custodians of culture that everything just gets lumped between 1975 and 1990 almost that it's part of punk. I think it was something really specific in the middle of that. Was this like you went, you were a kid, you start to be a teenager, you listen to music, your life kind of expands, or was this like, were there moments where just things changed? You were like, wow, I grew up in this sheltered place and then Sure. Leaps and bounds. Yeah. <laughs> so was there, there must have been this part where you're like, I could be a musician. That doesn't seem like a huge leap to make. If but I was the one gigs. who never thought I could be a musician. All I cared about were images and performance art. I had input on the art direction of Christian Death's show at the Whiskey. 
But I didn't like think, here, give me that bass and move my fingers around of legends of the way other bands started. No, I guess I didn't care that much about the music. It wasn't inside of me the way images were. What were the first images that you were like, oh? I would attribute something to resonance. Comb transmissions played in LA in 77. I I wasn't in LA in that moment, but it was um, documented in High Performance Magazine. People talked about it for the next 20 years. And then Susan Martin brought Herman Nietzsche here in 78. So a series of shows in this context of body art sort of cracked something open to me, like what performing something abject could express beyond music and words. Was this before anything to do with like painting or image? Oh, way, like, way before. I never You had, came in um, straight through there. You didn't have like a, a painting or drawing phase. I wasn't interested in painting, drawing, recording. <laughs> I don't know, I was interested in actions. Yeah. That's all I was interested in. I guess coming from that industrial music background, this idea of psychoneuroacoustics, like if you could change someone's neurology with noises and patterns and a rhythm, what could you do with edge play images that refer to the archetype that walk into the dark side? At that time, how would you see or get like what is in a Herman Nietzsche performance? Was there a recording? Were you just looking at stills? Looking at stills, I definitely had never seen a video. And I also didn't even bother reading the review. I didn't care. I just saw the images and let it soak in. Like, what is this like return to the bloody animal to still addressing the crucifixion, his changing of these rituals? I got it as much as an 18-year-old. You know, I also saw Sallow for the first time, and I didn't understand any of the politics, but I (laughs) enjoyed the edges. And the um, classical storytelling of having the three whores open each section, like circle of shit, circle of blood, with a story, the way it was all structured, I did get that. I had no idea about Italian communism and, and Italian fascism as a teenager. You're a kid, and there's an ecstatic religious ceremonial experience in your life already. Mm-hmm. And then you become a teenager, like almost at exactly the right perfect storm time. You're getting that again, but in a sort of twisted form. Like, it just seems like you made that leap almost without any of the in-between stuff. Well, because the hundreds a, of years of in-between stuff. The I was a fanatic. Had. Yeah. Of course I could just dive into something else extreme. I yeah. couldn't dive into something mediocre. Right. <laughs> what did you think about making money or making a living at it? Was it just something as a teenager? I, I didn't really think that far. I think this is important in comparison to now, is that there are lots of places to live that were less than $100 a month, and you could live with a couple people. So if you couldn't scrape up $60 to pay your rent, <laughs> but you didn't have to waste your time having like a deadbeat day job. I did various things like framing artwork and stuff for money. But it never dawned on me, like, is this a job? It was too out there for that. I don't think I was trying to, like, sit in that place. And I also was always exhausted by all the rock star goals of all my friends. You know, musicians are exhausting. (laughs) We always ask about jobs because jobs end up being really important to people's work later on. Like, whatever job they had at college, they never really thought about, you know, art school or just when they got out of high school. For all I know, you've never done anything but performance art. I worked at the LA Weekly newspaper for 18 years. 
But I mean, did you come out as a writer right away? Or no, no, just... I started as the editor and chief's assistant, and then That's got a certain job. kibbles and bits to write, and calendar, and pick of the week, and then they started giving me shorties. And I wrote a few features and a cover for them, but I, I wasn't a staff writer. Mm. But it was a base job that would let you like go on tour as long as you wanted no, it's you know the, it's another era where you support artists by is it steve erickson i was hired jay levin was still the editor mm-hmm. but i did work with steve and i met fantastic people like mike davis i already knew wanda coleman but when she would come in to edit something just be like wow it was a writer community then i mean we could talk about la weekly being gone all day but that seemed to be a place in a time where la was like consolidating a lot of ideas about what LA culture and identity were about that nobody else is paying attention to. Like LA has a really good idea of what LA is like because of LA Weekly in the 80s and 90s, but nobody else gets all of that until you move here and you're like, what's going on? You people seem to know a lot of shit about (laughs) Philip K. Dick and Scientology. It was was important for however long it was important. You know, part of it was even technology that made it unimportant. It wasn't just their bad business decisions, which was the nail in the coffin. Before that, I made jewelry. I used to make costume jewelry for two different companies for like four years. Did you have any kind of ideas about jewelry or just like, I'm doing it? No, I basically took it for the job. I was just like first gluing things together and and later got more into design with a different company. But I've had strange relations to people in fashion throughout my life too and have mixed feelings about that industry. I always make people watch Mahogany with Diana Ross and then Billy D. Williams um, asked her why she wants to make um, clothes for rich white women to wear. <laughs> anyway, I'd recommend it if you need a, it's a little good. insight. Yeah, it's been a while since I've okay. seen that. Mahogany. So you've always had a connection to that. So what was your earliest stuff that was your idea, that was your performance? That was P.E. with Ross. That's where I really like got it, that that was my thing, that I could... Under premature ejaculation. uh, Premature ejaculation under pressure, under stress, I would go into this articulation performing. Still feels the same when I reach that. If I don't reach that, I'm not happy. Was it improvised every time or is it kind of choreographed? It's outlined. That's how I think I work with everything. It's not a play where you rehearse it for six months till everything's ironed out of you or teased out. No, it's, it's a pretty accurate framework. Between here and here, this happens, but there's an articulation that's that's improvised or, or real time. The movement from like, okay, there's clubs and people are playing bands and clubs to move like art spaces was like something that you barely even noticed. That was just something that kind of happened. Well, it was two worlds that I enjoyed keeping propped up. So if I went to the ICA London, I would do a midnight show at Torture Garden or Fist, two big fetish parties. I would do the same thing here in New York. The club scene was really important to me, and I think it was a really creative space at that time. When I did Premature Ejaculation with Ross, we did Arts Building, and Arts Building Junior was a space that punk gigs happened at, but it was a storefront gallery that also had art events. So yeah, I mean, bands used to play at like Lace. The underground gallery is kind of in its own category. Yeah to move up to the club fuck cinematic time and being asked to do Martyrs and Saints at Lace. You know, Lace and Highways were the two performance spaces going on at that time. But you think people from my world suddenly started being on the board there. Like I was a fan of Dennis Cooper's writing, he was on the board. 
Bob Flanagan and Sherry Rose were also instrumental in inviting that. So, you know, these are people I already like. Culture would seem like it was changing for the first time since Burroughs Geisen. So how old were you at that point? By the time this kind of lace gig happened, I was, um, by then I was 30. Yeah. So you had had like a life at that point. Like, oh, sure, just I as crashed becoming, out and come back together, yeah. But I mean, just as we're becoming like <laughs> the artist that you are known as now, you were a guy who worked at the LA Weekly for 10 years. You know, 18. About 30 years, but a long time, right? Yeah, that's the middle of the Weekly. I was able to um, stay at the Weekly the whole time. So again, how do you support yourself in doing all this show? And then when the stupid thing with Jesse Helms happened, the culture wars in 94, to have to spend that much time defending a funding body you don't even understand and art centers you don't even understand. You think if you're actually afraid to show what's really going on, then maybe you shouldn't be open. That's huge. And I definitely want to talk about That's that. That's huge. Um, but just to skirt sideways, you know, for a minute on that. I just think people talk about big institutions like this thing out there. And they're actually, I, I feel like museums are getting way more interesting. They're hitting like a peak. You're taken care of as a human. You like you've got a job. You're living in LA. LA is more or less supporting you as a person interested in art. I'm interested in how your performances center you as the thing the art's about. You're the canvas. And whether there's a moment where you're like, okay, I'm all right with this and everyone's gonna watch me, or whether that felt like an outgrowth of what you had already felt when you were younger, when you're being seen as, you right. know, like in this religious context? Was it like, oh, this is just more of me being on a stage with freaks, being a freak, <laughs> or whether it was like, at this point, I'm gonna become a performance artist. I'm gonna become the thing that everyone looks at. It presented itself. Everyone wants to have a band or do a performance, but they don't do it. They just keep thinking about it and talking about it to actually like make it happen and then see what was it? What happened there? And what, what was that thing where this articulation happened? And already understanding like while I had all this material I fed into it, that the strongest thing would be to try to trigger something to happen instead of trying to relay a fixed idea. So it's experiential, you know, more than it was topical in that early work. I think the next phase, after disappearing for a while and then coming back in the height of the AIDS pandemic and people dying constantly or being hospitalized, you know, it was a dramatic period. And I think that work sat somewhere strong in a very melodramatic period. I think if you look at it as what got provoked, what came out, that saves you a lot of sitting in the studio before the studio, wherever the hell you are, sitting <laughs> wherever you are, and thinking about, like, what does it mean? The intellectualizing ahead of time that makes you think, oh, compared to everyone else in art history, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Why did I choose this of all things? If you just put all of your eggs on, I'm going to do something and then see what happens when I do it, it saves yourself a lot of thinking about it ahead of time because... Nothing that's the product of that thought is actually the important part of the thing. So I'd like to talk about the, the inertia of making um, work during a catastrophe. And I've looked at other eras, you know, there's war protest work, there's women's building work, there's ground theory AIDS work. Something drives you in that work. It's like you can't type as fast as the ideas are coming or the images just unfold in front of you because everything is so jacked up. 
Also, if, if everyone's going to die, who gives a fuck about the art world and where you sit and what happened in art history and what proper people who are on the company <laughs> art paycheck or whatever, like the powers that be that we fantasize too much about? Who cares about them? There's something more important going on, this need to express under the gun. At um, what point did you start to have the feeling everyone's going to die? By the late 80s. And I was already positive by then. I was positive Some by the mid-80s. Some people's stories are like 82. I felt like everyone's going to die. Some people's stories are like 85 and yours was... But 82 would have been people mostly living in a very West Hollywood Marlboro Man sort of reality. Like being on the outer edges of some kind of druggy post-punk scene. Those deaths really came on heavy... 90, 91, 92, 93, like those years were nonstop. And the other ones, I was involved and I went to support groups and I knew people in all different aspects of AIDS through the mid 80s, through the mid 90s until the, the so you're, three therapy. You're not sick. Like but I was never sick, but there was but never a way to understand that first they couldn't see the virus and then they could only see the you But know, you're the in antibodies. an unusual situation. Yeah, it's called the elite controller. So something in my body or the weakness of the strain I have never developed in the aid. I have weird symptoms, but they were never the typical ones. So when did you get your diagnosis? 86. Okay. Coinciding with that, it's funny how diseases have their own personality. I had hep C since like 1982 because we all got diagnosed non-A, non-B, mm -hmm. as it was called at the time. <laughs> so they that, couldn't just know, say C. <laughs> they hadn't made up new numbers yet. Yeah. They didn't think the obvious. We did talk a whole bit on Francis Bacon. How his work, it's about horror and, and stuff, but it's also a bunch about secrecy and socialness. These men in these rooms. Were you in an environment where it was like, you were across the board kind of comfortable and out, or were you in an environment where there was a lot of shifting back and forth between people you were okay with and people who didn't know about your life? And was that in the 80s, before and during your diagnosis? Well, I, when I left home, because I come from a fundamentalist family, I never talked to them again yeah. and still haven't. So I didn't care about them. I was activist about being positive. Like, if everyone's going to die of AIDS, I'm not going to be politely keeping it to myself in the corner. Also, I grew up in the wave of the... Se I was fucking in the 70s. I grew up in that progress of free love was still in the air. So to suddenly have everyone start dying and suddenly have everyone start from the inside censoring and moralizing, suddenly everyone wanted to be a fucking breeder <laughs> instead of being, you know, other things. That, so that's then they started huge... judging. It, it still goes on, but the idea of sex positivity... Without thinking of it in a corny activist way, it's just like, you know what I mean? I have to assert my sexuality. And that that's where must porn have been my really work. difficult. It wasn't. It was shot. like a mission. It was like a message. It was like, fuck you. I'm not putting it away. And it entered into these strange, non-sexual, sexual penetrative acts within the work. It was absolutely resisting that boxing away of this dirty thing. But it was a drama. At some point, that becomes something where you're aware of resistance. You're aware of a mission. You're aware of, of people wanting to think the other thing. And that is the point at which it ceases to be wholly about a psychological state and about a communication with a ceremonial something other. And it starts to be something which I think your work has a weird relationship to, which is do I or do I not care about 
everyone else's take on this. When you speak publicly and when you write and you're a good writer, you have to talk about what other people think. But the art almost seems like it doesn't want to be. It's like I'm making something about a private world. But, and then people say shit about it. And what they say is almost a separate. It's been dragooned into a but war. But when you perform the private public, something about it has to resonate or you wouldn't make the decision to deprivatize it. It's not that level of indulgence <laughs> or, or such a specific audience. The reality was in that moment, like let's say throughout the 90s, there was double audience for the work. There was the AIDS and queer activist side, and then there was the um, bod mod people. Modern primitive seems to fade away thinking about it, but that was a, a massive movement. Okay, well, now there's a tattoo shop on every corner to yeah, prove yeah. it, you know. But, but there wasn't then. There were like three tattoo shops. And they were illegal in New York. Public and private. For you, would you ever just do an action with no audience? Or is it not an action until there's an audience? No, I wouldn't do it with no audience. Because if you put it in churchy terms, there has to be a witness. What does the witness mean? The witness makes it be. Sure. But, <laughs> Otherwise, but, you could masturbate at home and call it a performance. Sure, but, but it, when you say the witness makes it be, that's something. Like, But even if they hate it, it's not going to change how I do it. Right. Or if but, they walk up. But I'm saying, I believe in formality. I believe in stepping up to the plate, stepping up to the screen, and then it starts. The meaningful thing starts. It doesn't identify itself in the recesses. Let's say you have an audience of one person. Is it activated yet? Or does it need to be like a certain critical mass? Go For ahead. me, I need a critical mass. Okay. okay. But there's intimate things and then there's big things. Is it because of something about the performance impersonally as a whole? Or is it because you as a performer or creator of the performance feel a different thing when those five, 10, when the critical mass is there? Because I splinter away from myself because I stand in for something. And that's why it doesn't work alone. And why it's really hard to get that kind of a boner for camera with no one there. Okay, so it's about your performance. Yeah, it thing. is reflecting or interacting with this collective witness or this certain number of people or a certain context. So you can't even do the performance in a certain sense without them because the energy's not there. Well, also the earlier work, like during a dress rehearsal, I'm not really going to pierce anything, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, for instance. So then you're <laughs> miming your way through it. That's not really rehearsing either. With Herman Nietzsche, obviously, it's like you're doing something, like in the performance. You're, you're taking an action that only gets, it's like a sport almost more than a theater. Does this get done? How much does it get done? Et cetera, et cetera. In your stuff, there's an element, and increasingly, I think, of stuff that's theatrical and that it's programmed. Like, this is going to be said and done. This costume's going to be worn. These elements are going to happen. Oh, the work was time. always like that. There but, were always full-on costume dramas. Right. But then there's also the element of, like, an action has to be taken, which can go more than one way, and which has a very visceral element. You know, someone gets cut, someone gets chopped up. So... Does that one part always have to be there? The part that has to be improvised? And do you in your mind chop them up into, oh, this is the part that is preordained and this is the part that can go a little sideways? Like while the action is gonna happen, I think of a bigger choreography, which is why I do go through blocking things and try to erase glitches and dull spots, especially with a lot of bod mod performances. People will like get their needles ready for like 20 minutes of time 
And it's just like real time. That's just a different kind of work. That's like reality work. Like, yeah. hey, I'm Ron. I just walked in. I have all my needles here. How are you guys doing? And everyone's in awe. That Whereas you're what doing I this. Yeah. try to do usually, you know, yeah. I work in a lot of different ways, but it is a heightened reality. And so then I want to use every sense, sound, light. I can set lights for two days. You know what's really scary in your performances is the guys in the white shirts with the tie. <laughs> Whenever you see someone in a really starched white shirt, I just get a little freaked out, like, oh, what's going on in their brain? Can you talk about that a little bit? Because all the costumes are crazy, but then there's a couple of guys that are just plain. There usually are the... I wouldn't call them straight guys, and it's not exactly an altar boy fetish, <laughs> but mm. there's that sort of crisp white shirt thing. It is a perversion to offset the other things. Yeah, it's, it's funny to see them juxtaposed. <laughs> I like that the white shirts scare you the most. That's good. No, because they come to my door selling me, like, you know, religious <laughs> stuff. Or, you know, they're, they're probably Republicans. They're the digits. <laughs> but they may be Jehovah Witnesses, and then they don't even vote. <laughs> Eventually, there's the whole NEA thing. Correct me if I'm wrong. Basically, you're in ascending, you're, you're getting shown in more and more arty spaces, less and less like, you know, industrial space, like, you know, just in that context. And somebody at, I think, the Walker in Minneapolis, Create Museum, they own my shit, love them. We love the Walker. Somebody notices your, one of your performances that's somehow sponsored by the Walker. They describe it, and it becomes thrown into the media mix of everything that people are complaining about with the people who actually have NEA grants. The war on culture was much more strategized than that. When the NEA 4 happened, and you know, I know all of their work, I already knew it, and I know them, and I thought, I love this work, but this is theater. Nobody's actually penetrated. There's no mortification of the flesh. It's a different thing. I just thought, if they got their hands on me, but I thought I was an outsider. I'd never, I didn't even know what a grant was. At that time, I hadn't performed at an art center. I'd, I'd performed at Randolph Street Gallery in Chicago, which is also like Lace or Highways. It was a performance space. So that's always been a bit more marginalized space. Right. The Walker was absolutely the first big space. And they did it as they do a lot of their events offsite at Patrick's Cabaret. But, you know, the story was written very carefully as a he said, she said, even though everything was outrageous, like that we were throwing buckets of blood and people were knocking chairs over. So that was a strategized takedown. And I was just the fuel. And I knew it. Newspaper None of it was it. true. It was the Walker paper, though, right? No, it wasn't. The, it was the daily paper no, in Minneapolis, the, the, the Star paper, Tribune. Was there like a local candidate? In Minnesota, that was like a direct political connection. Or was that that newspaper was just? The it was actually it. the sentiment of the day. That was like a split. Like, who do these institutions serve? Yeah. So, if these fundings are funding like marginalized gay and lesbian art that like three percent of the population may think about going to see, why should they pay for it? You know, just manipulating money versus something. I mean, we're in an entirely different climate now. With different problems, but with much more money. But it's like, oh, we almost aren't. I mean, I was in high school, and I heard this like in glowing terms from queer art students. He was the guy who threw HIV-infected blood on everyone. And I immediately thought, because I'm, you know, an art student, I was like, well, that must be fine. Like, that <laughs> must be like, there's no way you can get AIDS that way, because of that must be part of the point. And then Kathy Opie was like, right after that, that not true story, right? 
we're I've making, believed that for 20 years. Yeah, well, you can watch the video. Right. We made impressions from a wound a hundred times, running it out on three lines over the audience. You know, it's set. It was like on runners, like a clothesline, yeah. and you put it over, and it was just a person's blood. It was not... And they weren't positive, but that's an interesting thing, the polemic of blood, that anyone affiliated with somebody with AIDS became AIDS-y. (laughs) And yeah, we fought the fight for that. And one thing I learned is that scandal and politics are way bigger than this tiny, itty-bitty little art world and the even tinier bastard child of performance art. Yeah, I was very fortunate. That's when I started almost exclusively performing in um, Europe because I was blacklisted for at least 10 years. I could self-produce, which is what I did just to test to show up, but there's a lot of performances I never did here. A lot of people think of it as like, oh, this is someone who no one would have ever heard of, and then there was a scandal, and now you're an artist. And they think like, oh, well, in the long run, it's good for you. And like, what are they missing? Well, context. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But I mean, that's like probably what a lot of people think. Maybe. Did you get to start living off your work? Did you move to England? You were in London for a while. Yeah, it's hard to live off your work no matter what. That's why even artists that we consider famous still have full-time teaching jobs. It's only a few art stars. It's like the economy at large. Were you still working after the NEA thing? Oh, sure. I never stopped. I just stopped working in the U.S. in an invisible way. So were you teaching in London? No, I did work there, and I do something else. I do body work as well. I still do it. A few you mean days like a week. massage? Yes. Okay. But it's um, rolfing. Rolfing? Deep tissue. Okay. <laughs> That's not unrelated because you have to take insane tests to do that stuff. You have to know the anatomy. I always had a, th- a thing with the body and feeling what goes on under the skin. So it, it was a natural thing. And I did that after the newspaper. I know that at least in acupressure, there's all these great names for all the parts of the body. Sure. Like they're all geographical. Like. The cloud cliff and the dragon's ear. Oh, no, I don't, I don't know that. I There's, was going to tell you the Latin names of things. Those are great, too. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't seem unrelated to me. To it's like a good what, balance for me. Well, frankly, sometimes I always tried to write about things I cared about or things that needed a little pump when they come into town. Mm-hmm. If I was able to contribute to the calendar section, for instance. But sometimes that created a conflict of interest. If I didn't write about someone, they weren't speaking to me anymore. It's like, I mean, oh it, my God, yeah. do I have to be an ethical journalist even though I write graphs and bars and you know, very occasional preview of a show that's like a feature length? Sometimes doing something totally different, getting into somebody else's body, like the space I get into. I have a lot of clients with real body issues like scoliosis, a lot of scar tissue from accidents. I like it. During the NEA scandal, you were put in a weird position of defending arts institutions which had never actually helped or noticed you and artists like you. This is definitely something that in a different way we're kind of going through all over again now where we have to uphold just the arts period at all. But then increasingly what the arts means is a bunch of stuff that is like even Monet, like just the br- most broadly palatable art at all is just like off the table as a, as a thing that's getting funded. Whereas the people who are kind of pushed up to be the mouthpiece are the people who are kind of the last people that would actually get that funding. 
I guess I'll differ from that. Okay. There's more grants than ever. There's a, a massive movement of powerful billionaires funding art, even right-wing ones. We're in a climate we've never been in. LA is full of new museums that pay for everything. It's not this, oh, you're going to get 50% of the door, you know, the capitalism of early performance through the 80s and 90s. Right. You always get into what's dirty money, especially mm -hmm. after living in London for six years. I mean, they do oligarchy screenings of all funding <laughs> to see where it's coming from. So, okay, oligarchy's dirty, but British Petroleum is so-so. And, <laughs> and then most people who aren't in the art market apply for English Arts Council grants. During the scandal, did you just move to England immediately or what happened then? No, I still worked at the paper here and I was just based here. I go to the law the same places, but it, you know, during that period of time, I went from Copenhagen to Portugal to Poland to Mexico City. So were these arts organizations like letting you put on shows? Or of course. Were you, so that's good, I guess. And, right? Yeah, and then while well, on one hand you're blacklisted, on the other hand you think, you guys don't even fucking fund things anyway. You know, right. like the idea of getting a commission here means you don't get a fee almost every time. It even starts venturing into pay to play after a while if if you work in expensive work. Yeah. Producing is a really important part of it so you don't get left with the bag. At the point where you're going to Europe and you're touring, did that change the work that you were doing or the experience or anything about it? Yes, because um when I worked with a company, you know, say more theatrical work with the same eight people through all the 90s, um, we'd do one scene at a time. could do a, a show at a fetish ball and get $1,000. So you could spend all that money on props and costumes and start making a piece one module at a time at these events. Like that was my idea of arts funding. <laughs> it worked for it. So then I made Martyrs and Saints that way. I made Four Scenes in a Harsh Life that way. And then by 95, I got a, a commission from the ICA London to make Deliverance, the third part of that trilogy. So to actually be able to look at a bigger picture before even starting, instead of putting pieces of pie together and using the juxtapose format, I was able to already, this is the beginning of working with the hypnotist, to start doing development sessions with a choreographer and a hypnotist to learn things that we couldn't learn otherwise. With voice coaches, I stepped it up theatrically during that period. Because so we were doing festivals that would, would pay for it. So you're a troupe. We people. were a troupe in the 90s. Then I went to solo work after that as right. a break. Because being dad to everyone, like the Balkans during the war, <laughs> like we, we were in a lot of you know interesting places, but it, it, it takes some work to unify everyone and get with all those props. We looked like we were going to open a medical clinic somewhere <laughs> with all of our needles and prep stuff. <laughs> was it a thing where everybody had a say or was it more like you all had your own cutout places? That's hard to define exact collaboration. Um, it, it was my company. It wasn't like, how do we tease the scene up? But people that I worked with all had their own boundaries and that dictated the action. But for them, they're just bouncing around Europe in the 90s getting paid to be weird. That's kind of nice, <laughs> right? That's what it sounds like. It was a fantastic time. Yeah, we plugged into all kinds of scenes and groups of people that are they're like family now. You know, we mm -hmm. still see them. I want to talk like less about the acts and just and talk about the scripts and the the scenes. Mm -hmm. There's autobiographical stuff and there's sort of ceremonial cultural stuff and there's a lot of writing 
involved. How do you envision them? Like, where do you start with that? Do you, do you usually have like one image in your mind and you write around it? I usually have one question. <laughs> like, what is this? You know, like with deliverance, it was like, if you suddenly had a terminal illness and you pose the question, I want a healing. So what would that healing look like? And most people think restoration to what they were exactly before they were sick. But the way the universe works is more like the trickster <laughs> where you can move through that and still live, but you're something else on the other side. But that's a good analogy of an exploration of a topic. So you start with a question, but it's got scenes. Are you playing out that thing that you just decided was true? Or do you start writing one and then it starts to take over and then go to another place? Yeah, exactly. How much surprise and how long does it take to write out a... Well, I'm still understanding what I just saw. And this automatic writing piece I started in 2010. And I was in residence at Queen Mary University in, in London at the Center for the History of Emotions and the Department of English and Drama. So for that first year I was there, I started this idea of unfolding the memoir, like by shortening it down to one paragraph per story and using it as automatic writing tag so that 16 people would write it. That would go to six typists and that would come to two cut-up editors. You know, all these ideas of randomness, cut-up, word virus. In a way, take the power out of my emotional attachment to my story. Well, in that one, it, it harkens back to some older performance art from the 60s, which were about the process of turning people into machines that took part in a complicated process that the audience would watch. It's um, also very Catholic that the altar is a machine. Going back to the memoir, people want to describe something as an easy story, like these are autobiographical, but what does that even mean, this is autobiographical? I find in performance, at some point I just threw in the towel on trying to interpret something, and I understood that it's a way of getting somewhere. So you say, I'm making a piece about my mother. When the piece is finished, it's not about my mother at all, but somehow I had to address my mother to go into this weird <laughs> pathos and esoteric headspace around my issues with her. Then that becomes what happens. But is that really a piece about my mother? Well, a thing that happens to me is I'll go, I want to make something about X or something that does X. You start and slowly it just on its own starts being interesting in some other way and you work on it and you finish it and you make it good. You're like concerned after about halfway through that you forgot what it was supposed to be about or you don't care as much as you just care. I made so much material that does this and now just make that work. And you're done and you're like, that was good. I'm glad I started there. But then if you didn't do it all the way, you didn't address the initial question, you do it again. Like months later, you're like, okay, but I never did make that piece about waffles. So I got to start, you know what I mean? In a way, it's that simplistic. You have um, one story you keep retelling. Like I do come through the same channels over and over again. I just think it, they land in different places. But I, I am stuck in this like ritual view of things unfolding and presenting and standing in for something. The idea of channeling something you can't describe. Are you happy to be stuck? It's colored different every time. So it, I, I don't feel like I'm caught in a loop. Yeah, the topics don't change. But life, death, sex, belief, <laughs> um, decomposition. Right. So, yeah, you are kind of happy. Reinterpreting our belief systems. like To be religious and then to move against it in the time when crass songs were new, <laughs> you know, and so being really anti-Christian <laughs> in a knucklehead way, and maybe there's a period where you have to put it to bed, get rid of it, mock it, then to realize 
in some ways I honor this Christian side of myself, even though I'm an atheist. I was calling myself a mystical atheist because I go in and out of energetic beliefs and back to being cynical sometimes. Do you think that belief is in you because of your history or do you think it's in people? I think it's in people, but I like to say I'm always looking for a logic. That's what I'm looking for. Why do in, people in need logic and animals don't? Don't, don't make me go there. <laughs> I don't like animals more than people. I, I find that a, a mean antisocial statement. No, that's I, fine. I if you don't like them. puppies, I want to hear no. about it. I want a um, serval cat. <laughs> I want an ocelot. <laughs> I want a black panther. <laughs> I want a tiger. <laughs> I want a jaguar. I want a leopard with two heads. <laughs> I mean, we'd make really good LA millionaires. I feel like somebody should buy us a wildcat yeah, collection, give me a zoo. or we could move in with Tippy Hedren at Shambhala's. Yes, those animals won't be happy. Um, <laughs> they won't. You guys. That, that's why I never had an animal because I don't know how to take care of it. But you managed to take care of a troop for a decade. Cozy said that a lot of things that would happen. I always say like being in a band is like everyone falls into a role and then eventually resents the role that they found into, but. <laughs> She was saying that the things that she did to take over the group and assert herself were about, she had a certain level of like things that she needed to get done. Yeah. She kind of taken care of everyone else, but it was kind of taking care of herself and in order for herself to be taken care of, she needed certain things. And so she was the one who needed something before everyone else. And so she became sort of the boss of her troop. I'm wondering if like, you have a bunch of artists running around LA doing weird performances and whatever. Were you a little bit more driven than the people around you? And so you just sort of became the center or was there a different dynamic? I, I wasn't in a band. Yeah, it was a different dynamic. But I mean, you were at some point. I, mean, I was involved with people in bands. So I was like the, Pamela DeBars in the, of that era. But the, the performance <laughs> came out of that, right? You started on a stage with music, sure. people, you know. Did you eventually just become the person who was more serious about freaking out on stage than everyone else? I'm the one who got infected with the passion. I'd phrase it a little different. Mm. It wasn't like someone else also had that passion, but they were just lazy. Like yeah. They probably didn't feel it the way I did. Everyone was just like, we'll do what you tell us. Well, people bring their own thing to it, too. Yeah. And I work with the same people for really long periods of time. I still work with Divinity currently, and, and we started in the early 90s. And I was excited at the performance at Viviana. Everyone living from two lineups of Christian Death were there. So it's like, hey, I got the 80s covered over here. It's, it's nice to have a cross-generational audience of your own cross-generational references. Were the audiences different when you were in a sort of industrial S&M performance space vibe versus the art? Of course, vibe. everyone has gray hair at art things, or, or they used to. Now there's a new look of people who go to museum shows. Is it like the dark the, purple hair thing? No, it's something trendier than that. It's like the new people to L.A. that I don't quite know who they are. Is it uh, just how they look, or is there different performances, different emotions, different back and forth, anything else? Well, you know, when you perform somewhere, it's like who you bring in and then who follows that space as well. So it's, but does it change the performance? Sure. Maybe in a way that's not always so decipherable, but it's like... You can perform something with a lot of words in a non-English speaking country and you just think they kind of get it, you know, because the exact words aren't the same. But when you perform in your hometown, you know, and I have a couple hometowns, I don't know, you feel like families with you cheering it on too. 
it feels good for a lot of people to get it that you just by glancing around you you know this is like the sixth performance they've been to over the years at least or you know the repeat people so they know they have a different journey with you i guess that's an older artist thing that's different what was the last time someone said something to you and you're like oh it, your response is now inform it's like oh that's that's something every I'm time remember. Because I don't understand it when I do it, and that people can apply their own issues to how they saw the ritual of this performance and bring it back it keeps giving me insights about it. Is it important that when you conceive the piece, you're sure that there's a part you don't understand? Oh, I don't think I have to point out that I don't understand it. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> as you, after you, you do something complex. enough times, you might... Get, when you work like you in complexity it. with a lot of elements and then double down on that by bringing in a collaborator. I mean, working with an opera director brought in a world. I worked with classical musicians before, but I haven't worked in a classical world where everyone was from a conservatory or an experimental voice choir or proper musicians in their realm that, that also equally perform in an experimental realm. So that brought in a completely different thing. Is it exciting because it's a language, but it's a language you don't understand? Yes, yes. So it, was a, it had a learning curve. It had a clash of two worlds that fit together really nicely once we smashed them together. That seems to be a thing that actually happens a lot when to performance artists after a while. Classical world of musicians, they slowly get introduced. It's like at a certain, you turn 35 or something and they're like, you're a performance artist, meet some classical musicians and you guys need to collaborate now. I think that's like, a reading. That happens. <laughs> if I do another piece with like a noise track playing, I'm gonna scream. <laughs> Here so it is, like the walk. one drone, and now it's picking up a rhythmic, so it's arrhythmic, so it's kind of driving you crazy while something hideous is going on. Like, right. I don't know. It's nice to spread your hustle. I've used the Elvis like, song as a soundtrack. I feel you know? like it's art funding orphans finding each other after a while. Like you're like, oh, now I'm working with a poet, and now I'm working with an opera. It's like slowly after a while, it's like these people who have all kind of smashed up with the rocks of like, this is how much arts funding cares about you. And they all kind of shatter in different directions off it. And then they're like, hey, you two, you should meet each other. You're a piece of work. That happens that, though. Because oh. someone's art could start out as being like, I drive bulldozers over rhinoceroses. And that's like what you did for 10 years. But then 20 years later, they're always working with an opera director or they're always working with a classical musician. Name their names then. I don't know, I don't know. I can't name anybody. But am I making that name up? Their is that a dance. true thing? Who's copying me? <laughs> Did you ever want to teach a college class? I just finished teaching a class at Roski School at USC. It was an existing film class that I changed, but it was called Undergrounds and Avant-Gardes. They gave me that one because I had asked to... Um, now that underground counterculture it seems like it's disappearing or it's something else, it's part of my research anyway, so I wanted to try it with a class. What I learned is I'm not an academic, so doing a three-hour lecture every Tuesday for a semester is a lot of fucking work for not enough money, but... Make them talk to each other for a while. Yeah, that, that's my weak spot, is facilitating discussion with, like, um, poker face, like, young 20-something-year-old students, but I started them <laughs> with the um, beginning of the Pentecostal church in L.A. in 1906, which was the beginning of the Pentecostal movement anywhere. Like, that was actually a church, and it was a one-eyed black minister. 
and a multiracial congregation. These are kind of LA or, or California-centric things. Going up north for the Cockettes documentary, um, looking at Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Pre-mask era punk rock cults like the Source family and the Unarius UFO cults. Mm -hmm. So it was fun. It was fun. I don't know exactly what it added up to. <laughs> I'll tell you, you know, I ended up with a lot of like design students instead of MFA students. That's who, just who signed up for the class. Mm -hmm. The only thing I feel like putting on the door at performances is no art directors and no stylists allowed. No. I don't want to see Lady Gaga in my thing right. or Beyonce. It's tacky. And then your thing is ruined and it's over. You know, it's like a that's long, an interesting thing. That's a prevalent thing. Yeah, it's if actually you a tragic just, thing. If you could boil down, what is it that ruins it in the most concrete terms? What for somebody like cheesy to take your thing and, yeah, sh and I mean, use it as a look well, for one thing. week, even though you worked on it your whole life? That's Lady Gaga's whole job. Yeah. It's like in that Leaving context, even if they had made it, there's something less effective. Why? Well, but that? you're a populist to say that. I feel like this is the thing even people I know give back to me, but at least all these people saw it and could be turned on. I'm like, what, something that's taken out of context and stripped down to nothing? I guess what I'm asking is what to you is the important context that's missing? The ownership, the seriousness, the authenticity of what who it makes, came from. Okay, ownership and authenticity are you're the person who had the idea, so it's yours. I mean, I can't but fight the times the we live in. So. I'm interested in the seriousness and how you would define it, because that's the hardest one of those three things to define. Well, let's let's look at the work of Orlan, okay. and who has had or has a lawsuit against Gaga, and to go through these feminist plastic surgery statements, which ends up with the weird one, which is the bump implants, yeah. which, you know, being in a bod mod world, it's not unique, but it's unique in her world, that and, was her and at that look. timing. If I think of the progression of this, the evil alliance with fashion sometimes, she let um, Walter von Berenduck take that look for models for a catwalk show. And that's where the Gaga people saw it and gave it to her. So then those are permanent on Orlan, but you know, her point is everywhere she goes now, people are like Gaga pointing at her. Just like anyone who wears an ugly blonde wig, people point at you and go, Gaga. It's lame. The tone is so low, I'm embarrassed to be in that world. I'm a painter. All I deal in is the image. And all any painter deals with in the end of the day is the image. And I do a move which I don't think removes everything important, but it definitely removes a lot of things, which is I'll look at an old painting, like a Catholic painting from 16-whatever, and I'm not religious. I have several things. Talking about using it as a source, I'm but taking you're, you're it, not a giant brand. But devaluing I think it's not, it. It's not only that I'm not a brand. I, I think the devaluation has something to do with not just I'm not the person who invented the idea. But we experience the archetype, and that's what I was going to go back to, like your analogy of the classical instruments. They weren't just this surplus thing. There is archetypal value in the harp, in the image of the saint versus the image of a more contemporary evangelist like Amy Simple McPherson. I think that vibration through time in a research-based practice is what solidifies it. I feel like all that research and those layers are present. And for that just to be snatched away by pop is temporary Do you trashy. think that, that part of it is about giving those symbols enough room that they breathe on their own rather than jamming them right next to 
eight other things formally is so part of it. So are we talking about influence or co-option? I guess part of the difference is erasing all the history simply formal in that a lot of times when something's used in a music video or in a movie in a shallow way, it's about not giving the invention space to breathe how much of an invention and how much of deformation it really is. Look at that thing by jamming it right next to something else weird. You well, I'm just being really 80s, being against popular culture, like kill your television set moment. You know, I, I've changed a bit, but everyone else, it seems like popular culture is just so prevalent now that I'm not going to get on board with it. You're I refuse. No. It's just no. pure. No, we can talk about other things. Pure nihilism. <laughs> no, I think it's like a bad omen. It. It's like, like a Don DeLillo novel, like Mao 2, where everything's hit critical mass and it's just going to become like permanent Scientology. So how do you make work under those conditions? <laughs> like if you assume that that's how things are received, how do you keep going? What, received by Lady Gaga? Yeah. I mean, eventually it's going to be on YouTube, whatever you do, someone's going to see it. They're going to take it, compress it and use it. Well, you can, you can grab control of your stuff. How? We had a no camera policy and had guards going around. So we didn't have a bunch of crap images on flooding social media. We chose which ones. But even and if everyone they're actually good. copied them. Who cares if a few get through? But do you know how events are this way? Like before you get home, suddenly it's flooded. So if your thing is the image and controlling the image, or at least um, manipulating the image, a free-for-all isn't really doing that. And that's chaos is your aim. So you're just like, it's going to happen and you're not worried about it. No, I, I do things to offset it, like but saying I mean, no cameras. But you eventually do get the performance recorded. And once it's recorded, someone else can get a hold of it, right? Yeah. But, and then but, uh, I don't lose sleep over that. It's just part of it. There's no legal protection of trade image. There is no trade image. There's words, there's, there's photo rights, but to say this was my look and, and she stole it for a video, goddamn it. You know, you're just gonna be a crybaby in court. With blood and with pain and with all the other things is you're showing people something that's already omnipresent in their life that they ignore. And when it, something's co-opted and put in a context kind of half-assed, they're taking it and putting it right back into life into a way they can ignore again. It's like if you show people blood in a way that they're like, shit, I forgot like how that's... I think that the time that was had a, an impact, I also think we're in a, a time of extreme normals. Like, is anything shocking? I'm so shocked by the government we have that I do think you could just shoot anyone. You could... Um, turn people into slaves suddenly. Like, you know, it's like just spinning the wheel right now. It's, it's not a, a great vibe of extreme cruelty is the norm. Like, you know, like the first week in an office, um, Meals on Wheels was ended. Almost just as a like, fuck you, people who don't have enough. <laughs> so, so living in that time, also just going back to like bloodletting, I feel like it's like we're in a shrug phase of, of extremes. There are no extremes. Does that affect what interests you in the work? Well, that and time. I mean, I'm 56. I started doing bloodletting work when I was 18. You know, so I only had one person who was like, well, I like your physical work better, but I kind of see what you're trying to do with your voice. It's just like, okay, go see the good show around the corner then. <laughs> I'm not bothered. There's no need to say the same thing the same way over and over again. Like I felt like I thoroughly explored 
the beauty of blood, the violence of blood, the danger of blood, the polemic of blood, you know, that was my palette for a long, long ride with it. It's, it's okay to not have it in every piece. Does language surprise you? Does ceremony still surprise you? I don't play with language in a straightforward, clear way. It's like, you know, even using opera. To, can you hear what people say in a whole sentence of opera? <laughs> Libretto with it. No, the, yeah. The I mean, flourishes and stretched out contour of it. That's kind of a, another way of cutting up or mutilating words into something else. Was opera something you were always interested in? Sure. I, I like the spectacle of opera. And I learned if I went to an opera, even if I fell asleep, I would wake up in opera mode. You know, if you go to like a five-hour Wagner opera, it's like, I can't act like I'm keen on the edge of my seat through the whole thing. <laughs> Did you have favorite musicians in opera, favorite composers? The Philip Glass Ochnaughton at LA Opera last year was one of the best things I've seen. But I mean, that obviously didn't spark your interest in opera. No, like no, but it? as far as a, a new opera and in English too, because of musical theater, English language can be cheesy in opera. Yeah. But that was just a spectacular production, and I took mushrooms and just like cried looking at it the whole time. How often do you feel like you're making a performance or watching performance like, and everyone needs to be high? Because a lot of your stuff is like extended, and there's like a length of a thing resonating. Oh, I, I've never instructed people to take drugs, but if it's not, a social I'm not saying event, you should. Uh, Mike I'll, Giant has already come on the show and done that. I'm just saying, like, how often is that your like, this is how I would do it. I, I don't think that way. Okay. I've, I've been a drug addict and I've been straight edge, and now I'm in a strange place of moderation with certain natural things. So. But it doesn't affect how you view performances, because no. I would think it would. No. You're like, no, this because be that's already a heightened place. Way. So the dullness of um, other drugs is not really giving me any new information. Okay. Even the last, I took acid in Oaxaca a couple of years ago, and I was just like, it doesn't have anything else to give me. But it does affect your experience of time, almost no matter what you're taking. And, and time is so important in all your pieces. It is, but I have that like quick chop-chop sort of time that I fight against to make things more meditative sometimes and longer. But I, I'm not interested in doing like a long durational performance. Maybe if someone sold me on the idea, I would try it one more time. But the few times I've done things that were like six hours long, it's like, oh, for bloody Christ's sake. I well, know what, I'm a terrible audience member at long things, I just feel like. Yeah, but I guess I was even thinking of, you have things that are, they're not that long, but they are carried out with ceremony, with a certain slowness. Is slowing down, pausing part of what the work is about for you? Like you have life, which is like, do this, do and then you have this moment of like. I think the density is important. You can't just be full on. When you do things in nightclubs, you have to be full on. Like don't be boring. Right. Like stop the music and do something like slow and boring. Yeah. You know, it always has to have this different punchiness. I think that's an amazing place for work to come from. Instead of the academy where a lot of people are sitting around completely tolerant, giving you like the feedback from the critical theory books they've read, the way they've internalized it and give it back to you. What about outside stimulations to affirm or reject a piece and yeah. when the stakes are higher that's what i'd say if you saw johanna went open for black flag at the whiskey which i did she didn't come out like timid art lady you know a witch doctor on speed with animal entrails and i'll send you're topped those are performance skills i guess but it's also develops the work at a more demanding intensity. Well, people aren't so, afraid to say something mean. 
Like in, in art spaces, people are nice manners. and they feel like it's their job to find meaning in what you're doing. But Whereas you in, a, in a nightclub, down. people are, it's their job to, to decide whether they like you or not. If you sit everyone down in a black box and you have the absolute magic of tech that you've been building for days, why not try slow and mono and monotonous and change the pitch? I don't know. It just depends on the piece. Your work has been academic, like people have written about it in an academic sense. How much of it is good and how much of it is bullshit? Have you gotten things that you thought were, oh yeah, that was really helpful? I mean, academic language is pedantic, you know, so it's never like an interesting read. Never. <laughs> like you get stuck and then you have to look at it from that side and then that side and that side and then someone quotes Jacques Lacan <laughs> and Deleuze and then we move on. I'm not an um, anti-intellectual. I am... Um, you know, almost fetishized philosophy. So I'm not saying it's useless, but it's a bubble that there's not enough bridges from. And so I, I do care about that. Like, what's the in-between language? And especially with the, like, cultural journalism has disappeared from so many outlets. Even with the LA Weekly gone, with the LA Times, like, thinning its staff out. Where do we think about these pieces? Look at Cindy Carr's books, but, you know, The Village Voice doesn't exist. She's not writing about performance anymore that I've seen in a while. There's these voices I miss that I used to get a lot back from. So it's about finding another way. You talk a lot about your work and you write a lot. I always felt like, and one reason we do the podcast is if you don't talk and write as an artist, it shouldn't be necessary. You shouldn't have to. But if you don't, we're in a culture where someone else will and they're always doing it wrong. So I was like, okay, we have to talk. Like, I feel like I'm in that position. And I'm just wondering if you ever feel like you're in that position. I have to talk because otherwise someone else will. I think that was expressed really articulately by Mike Kelly, that you have to keep writing about it <laughs> until they get it. Well, it worked for him, <laughs> yeah. I guess, yeah. People approach making art from different places, but I, I'm always trying to find out. So writing is an important part of arriving. Have you ever just thought of like, I'm going to do a novel or, or like a long poem? I hate writing. But you do it, does, it and you're I not know, bad it at it. It doesn't come easy though. And, and I've gotten lazier at it, like sitting down and really doing a whole novel. I just don't have an outlet to like write also about other people's work that I love. You know, that's an important thing for me. I'll figure it out. There's other ways to highlight people too. I curate, you know, maybe that's what replaced that instead of writing about them. Whenever I get a gig where I can pay people properly and bring them, you know, like the summer happenings at the Broad, that was fun because, yeah, I always wanted to work with Linda Montana. You know, I've seen her a few times over the years, starting from the 90s. And I know she was one of Annie Sprinkle's mentors. And this life art idea is also exciting. So just to bring old school, new school kind of discussion to a, a summer happening. Do you feel like when you see other people's works, you go, oh, that's a good idea, and you figure out how to metabolize it? Or are you like, that's great, and you feel like you're in your own hole, and you work out of your own space? No, but maybe sometimes you do see lighting, like a technology you've never seen. And usually I don't chase technology. Like I remember when sensor technology was brand new, and every sensor needed its own whole hard drive. So you'd need like eight hard drives to walk through a field that triggered some videos. And then I thought, but the tech guy could do it. <laughs> like from the window, like you know, instead you, yeah. of spending $25,000 at the time, you know, I actually researched the system when it was first starting. So tech isn't my favorite thing, but I do look at 
maybe not other performers, but I look at like Anthony McCall's light sculptures that are like a video white world within a spotlight, like moving and the idea of light becoming more tangible as an object. I am inspired by other people's work for elements like that. Yes. A lot of your work involves like traditional ceremonial art. Is there any kind of culture that was like your first way into that sort of museum world? Was it Indonesian or was it Mayan? Or was the first thing where you were like, the material culture they were making. When did you start getting into that? Because it's clear that you did a lot of research after a while and it starts to be like, you know, you're making these headdresses and like you're making costumes that reference it directly. What was your first love in that area? Pageantry and costume really was a Catholic fetish of my family, living in a Latin neighborhood, but being Pentecostal, like Protestants don't have any glamour. So first starting with that Catholic thing, and we would go to neighborhood weddings and funerals so I knew what the inside looked like as well. Yeah, of course, I have this attraction to feeling to um, oceanic tattoos and was part of a tattoo scene in L.A. that was really small and really international. Like People would come from everywhere to meet with Bob Roberts, Ed Hardy, Leo Zulueta, Hanky Panky from Amsterdam, Lal Hardy. These people would converge, and Dan Tomei would come from Guam and show these slides of this hand-picked work that was going on soon. It was an exciting time. It was an actual scene to be sitting and doing in different people's tattoo shops then, like 82, 83. That stoked that interest in particularly Micronesian, Oceanic tribal cultures and probably one of the earliest origins of tattooing as well. That also seems like one of the things that academic art criticism just seems to miss over and over. You'll see people who are working in that tradition who kind of make a little crossover work and they'll just go like, oh, this person draws on this and that and the other thing about history. It's like, yes, but like they went right through something that was happening all around you for 15 years that you didn't write about. It's almost like the artist they don't benefits know how. from that lack of context because it makes it seem more weird to the curators. But I think that's what the change is. There's more contamination now with what's really going on and what's at the museum. It's, mm -hmm. it's not always the smoothest or successful <laughs> collaboration. You know, going back to comb transmissions, cozy. And, you know, the story from this side, like LAICA gallery, it was a really abject performance, like breaking glass, urine, gin vomiting, and then eating again. You know, like just an abject frenzy, sexual, cozy's auto bondage thing. And then response of up and rising, edgy LA artists, like they say, Chris Burden stood up and said, this is an art, and walked out. There were camps of people against them, even though they were just passing through town. And I, I thought that was really interesting that, I don't know, they could see where their own experiment fits in the art world because they were going to like getting an MFA at a proper college. But these like British skanky musician artists that came through, they pathologize them, but not their self. There's definitely something about the art world setting up scenarios where you do something fucked up, but it's almost a lab. It's like, well, we did it fucked up in the lab. Whereas you're just out there living being fucked up. And that's somehow They're, contaminated or cheating or not cultural enough. It's also a it's, mafia because you didn't do it at their house under their like institution. The amount of nepotism in, in that still even with the positive changes going, it just makes new mafias.
Yeah. <laughs> like this. At least there's new blood and it's shifting up, you know? Like maybe there should just be regulations. One person can't run the same museum for 40 years and then <laughs> steer it in their direction. Well, I like your idea of the hit list. There should be a hit list of curators that aren't putting out new shit, that aren't curating people, and that we should just take them all down. <laughs> I have felt that way sometimes, but now I feel like everyone has a hit list. The hit list is because they're triggered, or we're going to end up in the most boring world if something doesn't switch. That's a, also a whole other thing. Transgressive queer performance is an era, and now we're in an era where there's a queer activism around trying to do all the normal things that being queer during an activist era was about trying to avoid. It was like, can we please be in the army? Can we please get married? Can we please adopt children? It's like, if you guys are going to get married, can I not do those things? As a straight guy, I will like, you can have (laughs) all of that shit because that is what I was avoiding my whole life. Well, I agree with you. The fight to be normal. This is um, addressed in the Lee Edelman book, No Future, Queer Theory and Death Drive. And he talks about, what about us who are part of non-reproductive futurity? So what is our future? How do we design a future without genetic material on the wings of us? And there is something dark and abject and strange in taking on that role. You know, you can call it queer, but, you know, of course, I also know hetero people that also play that role. You, but I you also don't have think the baby like, and you, you occupy a self. I think there's a, a shadow in that role as you get the older. The people who will tell you at a young age that they never want to have kids and they keep meaning it are always very different people. After the clothes wear off, People who are like still saying 35, 36, 37, they're like, yeah, I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to have kids. Like You're like, oh, you always were one of those other people. And they slowly kind of divide off. And they We have live a- in an overpopulated world. I don't even know why it's a discussion. If some people want to opt out of um, jacking off over their genetic material growing up in front of them, great. John has a kid. Well, he's part of dominant culture, too, so he could probably take I'm it. I'm fine with people not wanting kids. It's not a must for everybody. <laughs> Helena's lovely, and we love her. We can coexist. Yes. <laughs> it's a different thing. You end up in a different place. I have friends who didn't change when they had a child, but that's not the norm, You know, especially if they have two. Suddenly it's a nursery daycare center. It's just a different priority. But it also has to do with what kind of counterculture you end up with. There's a kind which is like, you're provoking people, but in the end you're provoking them because you're asking them, why can't we be normal too? And then there's like, we're just here to permanently provoke you forever. But but that's the time when there is no counterculture, queer or otherwise. (laughs) There's just rich and poor people. Right. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) What was the analogy of one of these future sci-fi shows? Um, The future where rich people are immortal and poor people are prawns. Yeah. <laughs> it is. So all the little fine-tuning of little bitch fights and things are a waste of time, the path that's going down. That's how I see it. I'm a child of the 70s. I formed in a time of progress, and using the term colorblind was actually considered something beautiful that you could just see the person and not differentiate. But now everyone stands in for their identity. Individually, for their identity at large. Do you get static about your work now, like from a former progressive quarter? Is it like, okay, well, you're one of those people, it's fine. How does that not end up happening to you, or is it just not seen? Maybe it just hasn't happened yet. Now there's a generation gap. You know, teaching, I see that. It takes me a few sessions to even start reaching them. 
And I'm not one of those old people that hate millennials, so I'm, I'm curious. I, I, sure. I have a million questions, but suddenly I feel a generation gap. I thought there was never going to be one because when I became a teenager, you know, of course we had like hippies and disco <coughs> people clouding our background, and all of a sudden there was this new thing, so fuck you, kill disco. That sort of absolutism, of, you know, a good old-fashioned teenage generation gap. I feel like there hasn't been one. And with queers especially, AIDS sort of made a weird, awkward one, like a missing link rather than a generation gap. And the Mies Commission report also had a lot to do with that, where you couldn't be friends with someone who was 15 for, mm. for paranoia, like this division happened. A lot of things like that change, but I never felt a generation gap where none of our references are the same, you know, unless we stay strictly academic. Right. So I have to work at reaching them. What I notice is if someone's my student, it's like it's their fault. They're already sort of pre-selected, you know, but other than being more comfortable with being stoned all the time in front of their teacher, I'm struggling to find like, like anything I say to them, they're like, oh, cool, cool. I don't yet see, not a generation gap and just casually not getting references, but more like, do they not see why you're making X work or why certain things are positive? Because, I mean, your work was super sex positive. Right, but then the context changes. So part of sharing is saying, okay, in 1992, for instance, like you have to set up some kind of change, why these things were so vital and why there's such an urgency and even franticness at certain periods and certain types of work. That's not part of the gap. I think the age difference is real to be yeah. <laughs> 40 years older than someone. Sure. <laughs> okay, I mean, not are, quite 40. But. Are you noticing anything coming out in people's work that's new, different? Oh, sure. I, I, I mean, I think the percentage is the same as always. It's like one in a hundred that just fucking rattle you. And you think you were born ready. <laughs> you know, you can clean up your rough edges and meet people that'll influence the rest of your life in school. I think consciousness and because of the expense of MFAs now and how rough a lot of people's lives are because of student debt. That's a hard thing as an outsider. I never went to school. I don't have a degree. You know, I'm brought in as a guest. That's why also why I don't have a real job. So to either share the stress with poor students who are a hundred and something thousand in debt and realizing like, yikes, not only am <laughs> I probably never going to be able to pay this off now that I see graduation not that far away, I realize there's no money in art anyway. I'm tender to that stress. I'm an outsider, so I don't know how to be um, helpful either. That colors it more every time at fancy private school. It's an ironic thing, because on the one hand, there's a road paved for someone to go be a performance artist and do a transgressive performances that wasn't there before. On the other hand, their ability to afford that is way harder. It's strange. In some ways, like there's a little zone where it's okay to make that work all of a sudden. It's almost as if like you're being begged not to go to school and you're being begged to invent some new form that isn't okay. People are constantly asking you, just do something radical and new <laughs> and weird and take the hit when we don't notice it. People with degrees have a different life than I had. You know, sometimes I do get tired of slugging it out and figuring it all out from the outside. You know, having said that, I've proven I can make things like big pieces when I have the space and time and money to do it. I just had this funny thought of you going to college now, like Rodney <laughs> Dangerfield. I did sit in a year of um, philosophy seminars at Greenwich, but I didn't register. Then I thought, I'm too nihilistic. Why would I fucking go to college? <laughs> Be like 100 <laughs> when you graduate. 
I have mixed feelings about school. I've met a lot of interesting people when I do teach places, but I think I'd like to do more making things classes. Who are the philosophers that you are most interested in? If you just see, oh, how do I even enter philosophy if you haven't always read it? So I studied with Professor Sue Johnny Golding, who she was a student of Foucault. She had a, a thing with Kathy Acker, so she had good credentials for me. Right. And she wanted to make a program at Greenwich <coughs> that was a half written thesis, half practice based thesis. So that is the beginning of the gifts of the spirit as a thesis of can a phenomena be constructed? Like if you put all the elements together. So she starts you with, why did um, Leotard have to restructure dialectics of the sublime for the onset of postmodernism? So to be led through certain readings and not just be lost in an endless like Deleuze book <laughs> and read the good ones like pure eminence. The early thinking about that was like, absence of myth or whatever. Religion, people believe in religion. Then religion breaks down, but people still need the, the belief, the structure, the meaning-granting thing. And it was something like your early life was that in a microcosm. It was like, oh, there's the belief, and then it's gone, and then you're immediately pushed into a space where... Even as Deleuze writing on um, Nietzsche that uh, the only failure after the death of God is nihilism, that actually called me into accountability. <laughs> like what I say... Yeah, I can be on the dark side. To say I'm taking responsibility for myself. You know, even if you use the word self-care in different ways, we owe it to ourselves to update our philosophy regularly, our, our logic. Terminal, we owe it to ourselves to take care of our bodies. If you were terminal, which you turned out not to be, would you have been wrong to be nihilistic? But I'd say, I think nihilism is like a defense sometimes. I was nihilistic before any of that like a suicidal teenager for 10 years <laughs> as, a, as a young man. What were you avoiding? I, I just had a lot of distortion and I was avoiding the choices for a life, leaving this religious space and this poor white trash space. It was that urgency of having to define myself when I hadn't been socialized or exposed to very much. It, it just seemed overwhelming. But I wasn't willing to just buckle up and play the game. So I had a lot of rough years figuring it out. Yeah. We covered a really good amount. Yes, I feel exhausted. <laughs> I think if you're exhausted, yes. then we're probably... Mission accomplished. Good. That means exhaustive. <laughs> Thank you. You've Thank you, guys. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Weed Art. Check out our guest, Ron Athey. His latest work and announcements on his Twitter page, at Ron Athey2. That's R-O-N underscore A-T-H-E-Y underscore two. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at Weed Art. And Zach has an art show in New York City at Fredericks and Fryzer Gallery. It's called A Thousand and One Nights. It's opening April 19th. And like a regular art show, it'll be up for a month. Also, John has more of my artwork at my Instagram page, which is John Mejias Papeng, or Tumblr, All Things Papeng. Coming up, the Artillery Magazine. We're having a panel discussion. It's going to be held out through Munis Projects, Saturday, May 12, 3 p.m. Go on Artillery's Facebook, Artillery Mag, and look on our events page. You'll get all the information. It's moderated by our associate editor, Christopher Michno. I imagine it's going to get a lot of attention. I would highly 
highly recommend coming on by and stay for a drink afterwards. Find us on Twitter at Artillery Mag. Like us at Artillery underscore Mag on Instagram. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at Weed Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. Weed Art is produced by Papanga Mnemonic Recordings. The engineer, staff, producer, and editor is Justin Asher. I've known Ron for about 30 years from the LA Weekly. We always went out for a smoke on smoke break. I've seen a couple of his performances. The early ones are kind of hard to take. He stapled his testicles. And I saw his most recent one downtown. That is practically tame compared to his earlier ones. He incorporates opera and speaking of tongues. Mnemonic Recording.